Hey guys and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So thank you so much for all of the downloads. Thank you so much for all of the correspondence. Thank you so much for all the DMs. Thank you so much for all the reviews. So please, please, please continue to do all the reviews and shares and stuff like that on for the podcast. If you continue to do so, the bigger the guests, the best names I can get on to it. I'm so, so excited for today's episode for you guys to hear it. I'm so excited for the next kind of few episodes in relation to hear some of the guests that have got booked in and I have to keep push hush and thank you so much for the feedback on the Coaches Corners episodes as well I love those they're so informal such a chat and uh, hopefully I'm not sure when I'm recording this episode has the news been announced yet or what the situation is but there's something coming up pretty cool so I'm, I'm super excited for this so Today's guest is Tim Spector, so at Tim.Spector on Instagram. So he's a professor of genetic epidemiology and head of the Department of Twin Research at King's College, London. He's a leading expert on the gut microbiome, whose work has transformed what we know about nutrition and health. He is the author of The Diet Myth and Spoonfed, and Tim's latest work, Spoonfed, highlights how much we really don't know about food. So some of these, he talks about a hell of a lot of myths and what's out there, so we talk about the difference in how like someone will react to some food and someone else will have a different reaction to another food even twins we talk about any truth behind breakfast being the most important meal we talk about should we ban the word diet on food labels are artificial artificial sweeteners bad for you is there any link between diseases and red meat anything to do with government guidelines and tolerances what's the best way to get uh, an intolerance test and what's the, the truest one and like his book is incredible guys and there's there's a lot of information in it so the the book is uh spoon fed and it's available up on amazon and it's incredible so guys i hope you enjoy in enjoy the episode with tim Spector. tim thank you so much for coming on a pleasure so tim i I gave you a brief little intro at the beginning of the the podcast but i'm going to get you to kind of talk about how you kind of got into this field and kind of how the the idea for the the diet myth and spoon fed kind of came about the two books that you've written yeah, well, I've, I trained in medicine and epidemiology and started get working on twins about 28 years ago. And we now have 14,000 twins that we study regularly, which are an amazing source of information based an incredible natural experiment, really, that you could only do in a lab with uh, rats otherwise. So most of that, my career has then been showing how Identical twins are very similar to each other for diseases and attributes and personalities, etc. It was really only the last, I guess, about 12 years I started being interested in why twins were often different. So why um, they would die of different diseases. One would get cancer, the other one wouldn't. One would be depressed, the other one happy. One would be overweight, the other one um, skinny. So that's really what captured my imagination because... These, these are genetic clones that have lived the first 18 years of their life in identical environments, and, and yet they're not as similar as we've always assumed they would be. Uh, and if we can unlock that, that can tell us a lot about our own health and the ways we manipulate it. So um, I worked out that the, the thing that was most different about identical twins who had lived the same lives was actually their gut microbes. And if you think of the gut microbiome as a, a special organ in the body, then these, these twins had very different organs that were only resembled each other. You know, about a third of the species were similar. Most were not at all identical, unlike the genes in every cell of their body, which were 100% identical. So that was the sort of aha moment for me when I discovered that, you know, everything else is so similar in identical twins that it's uncanny. But these microbes and the chemicals they produce must be the real reason that we are much more different than predicted and we're not like, you know, our brothers and sisters or our friends next door. And this is this unknown, undiscovered factor, really, that we haven't looked at and could be the key to why uh, foods act differently on us as well. So that's really, that triggered my going away and learning about the gut microbiome uh, about 10 years ago, which ended up in the book, The Diet Myth, which to me helped re-explain a lot of these dietary fallacies we've, we've come across. And then having 
worked out the microbiome was really to uh, was the solution to all this. It became obvious that we, I, I wanted to write about why we'd been misled about so many food myths, and it was a combination of old wives' tales, lack of decent science, lack of funding, uh, very small studies, but also the influence of the food industry on us, um, uh, which had given us all these fairy stories about food in order to sell us more, but also linking in the gut microbiome into this idea that we're all unique and therefore there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. So that really was the context of, of of spoon fed, which is all about uh, personalizing nutrition and about how we've been misled. The bit about the twins is fascinating because I was reading something else about kind of stress and the impact it has on twins and the depression that has an impact on twins and, and, and the variables on that as well recently. But is is it kind of with all foods that they kind of would react differently in the gut? So if, say, if someone had protein, would they react differently? If they had carbohydrates, would they react differently? Or is it only one sole macro that they would completely react different? I think they react differently to all foods. It's, it's At the moment, it's our ability to measure it that's different. It's very hard for us to measure uh, response to proteins at the moment because we don't actually have a tool, uh, whereas we do have now a tool like the continuous glucose monitor for measuring response to carbs in terms of sugar, and we can measure blood fat levels six hours after a meal to see how you, you're responding to fatty foods. So. Uh, I suspect that there is, we respond to all foods differently. Um, we, we can't yet quantify that in large numbers of people in real time. Okay, brilliant. And, and that, one of the things that kind of came up uh, in, and it was one of the big myths around breakfast. And I know this is one of the things that I get asked on a daily basis by clients and, and DMs and stuff regarding, is breakfast actually the most important meal of the day? And would it help you lose weight? Because I think, for people who listen to this, majority of them are starting either starting off on a weight loss journey or on a weight loss journey, and they kind of they there's so much information out there. So what is the, what is, what's the evidence saying? Well, I'm sure your parents, probably like my parents, told told yeah. you to eat your breakfast. Yeah. Otherwise, you know you'll be you'll be puny and uh, or you know you do badly at school or whatever it was. And it turns out that's not true, and the, the sort of propaganda about breakfast that's been around us for 30 years is is based on some very old studies that we really now no longer stand up to scrutiny. And we were told that if you skip breakfast, you would be your metabolism would go out of kilter and you'd be ravenously hungry for the rest of the day, and this would destroy everything, and you know you'd end up becoming obese and doing really badly at your schoolwork. So that really has been uh, dismissed now by some really good randomized trials showing that that definitely isn't the case, that if you skip breakfast, you will eat slightly more at lunch than you would have done, but not enough to make up for the calories you, you didn't eat at breakfast. And it doesn't seem to massively reset your metabolism, as we were told. And on average, people actually uh, in trials uh, lose a bit of weight if they skip breakfast and have an extra bit, have slightly more at lunch. So that is what the data is showing us. And they're also showing at school, there's no real uh, evidence that it, it causes bad behavior or loss of concentration in children. So I think we can tell people or, you know, your clients, listen, it's perfectly safe to experiment with skipping breakfast. It may not be for everybody, but give it a go. See how you feel. See what your energy levels are like. And, uh, you know, on average, it should work. But we do know there are some people that are their circadian rhythms, if you like, are much different. And some people metabolize much more in the mornings and evenings. And in these, in these large studies we did on the twins, which we're probably going to discuss more about the PREDICT studies, uh, by giving thousands of people the same foods, we did show that on average, most people do metabolize this uh, food slightly better in the mornings and the evenings, but that 
is not true for maybe a quarter of people. It's the reverse. And it's not true as you get over 50. So as you age, your metabolism changes. So what might have been true when you were 20 is no longer true when you're 60. So again, not only does one size not fit all, but it might also change with your age as your, you know, your body's changing uh, and adapting. So I, I tell people, uh, it, it's, you know, don't assume you have to eat breakfast. Most people are not starving when they wake up. Our ancestors didn't eat breakfast. Um, the Hadza tribesmen of East Africa didn't even have a word for breakfast. And it's a, it's a modern invention. So if, uh, if you're one of those people that doesn't feel the desperate need for something to eat, leave it out. At least once a week, everyone should leave it out anyway, because that also has the extra benefit of giving you a, um, an extended fasting period. And we now believe that that extended fasting, the so-called restricted time eating, is good for your microbes. So your microbes uh, allows them time to regenerate, get a different, like a defense team comes out at night, cleans up your gut, uh, cleans the lining of the gut, improves your immune uh, fighting potential, and sets you up for the next day. And so this is also means that the idea of regular snacking and, and things like this, eating last thing at night, really should go out the window. So longer periods of fasting, shorter periods of eating, eating more at your proper meals, cutting out this, this old myth about grazing. Uh, it, I was always taught grazing, not gorging. That's the way to go to give you a stable metabolism. Just nibble on something throughout the day. And uh, that's the perfect way. And you know, those data were based on about nine people 30 years ago, you know, and these nine people would be nutrition students at some American university. And, and, and you know, really by today's standards, you unpublishable, but we still use it because it's suited, you know, the food industry, it's suited a lot of standardized advice and um, we haven't challenged it. But I think we all need to challenge it now and realize that, um, you know, we are all unique and therefore don't accept there is one rule that everyone should go with. And that's why, you know, naturally about a third of people do, do not have breakfast anyway or don't feel hungry. Uh, and culturally that varies around the world. So clearly uh, our, the pressure on the British to, you know, eat their meals or the Irish to have the, you know, the full Irish breakfast um, is, is, is a cultural one rather than a, a health one. I think what you've said there a few times is that it is it is kind of a, a, you have to f- tailor it to you and try things out to see if they work for you. Like I I know personally, I train and work better fasted, and I probably have breakfast or or something light at say ten a.m. and that would be me, and that would be I'd be I'd feel I just more alert at that time. Uh, but I know someone else could be right. I want to have breakfast a little bit earlier. But I think it's it's interesting you said about that it's not a one size fits all, which is huge. You meant you mentioned there about kind of like the the studies that have been put out there. Are the studies that are kind of like and the information that are being put out there from like governments and government guidelines, are they quite biased because of where they're coming from, from the research from say companies and kind of marketing companies bringing that towards the attention of people? And what can be done about that if it is biased? Yeah, it, it's it's probably not intentionally biased, but all the guidelines of all the major countries um, always do them in conjunction with the food industry. So you'd have a group of scientists that may in, include um, a couple of members from industry who make up some guidelines, and often they tend to be better than the eventual ones that get put out uh, officially, so there'd be some scientific ones, but actually the public health message would be slightly different because, again, that would be diluted by the the, the lobby groups of the big food companies. So they would dilute down any recommendations to say reduce sugar or um, give us a healthier uh, uh, food content. Uh, but 
at the same time, these, these guideline groups are very conservative. They don't like to change their previous ones. They're usually the same group every year or every three or five years. So if they change things, it would be criticizing their previous one. Yeah. And nobody likes to say they were wrong. Uh, certainly not in nutrition. They do in other areas quite a lot. And this is what I, one thing I found in, in nutrition is people stick to that theory that, you know, cholesterol is deadly or, um, you know, there's a certain fatty acid or coconut oil is good or whatever it is. They, they never change their, their opinion, even if new evidence comes along. And uh, this is more marked in this area than anywhere else. And that's because there's often a dearth of good data um, to, to change their minds. So I, I think it, it, it's complex because the food companies also uh, do fund a lot of the research that goes on and make sure that the direction of the result can only go one way. So uh, they will you know, fund a study in Cork or Dublin on some particular product and, and um, with an aim to show that it's certainly it's it's safe and probably healthy and they would never have a another arm that would say well actually you know it it could possibly be unhealthy and so you can't blame the universities for running those projects because that's how they, their careers uh progressed getting these grants and writing papers so it, it's a it's a complex web that i think just needs to be called out but all the governments need to be spending much more on nutrition on nutrition funding so we don't have to rely on food companies for advice. It's like, you know, if you did all work on lung cancer and it was all sponsored by cigarette companies, um, you know, you wouldn't really believe it. No, I think, yeah, you just have to be aware of the, the biases that are in there. I know some of the studies have been done by like cereal companies for breakfast and stuff like that with the bottom line as, as the main uh, main orientation towards it. Yeah, and you've got to be very wary because some of these reviews, uh, food companies will commission reviews of products like breakfast cereals or whatever, uh, and it'll be written by this, what looks like an, uh, an independent group of academics, but actually they work for a charity, funded by a charity, that's all their money comes from the food industry. So um, it really you have to look really carefully to say who's actually doing these reviews and you know that they're contributing to huge amounts of, of the stuff in in these journals and it and are the government guidelines say because i know i know from growing up anyway from when i was growing up it was like oh, two and a half thousand calories for men two thousand calories for for women is that outdated or is that kind of like is that going to change anytime soon i don't think it's going to change anytime soon uh, everyone loves it <laughs> yeah <laughs> You know, uh, it gives the public health departments in the governments a nice target, um, you know, and it it allows them to then have this whole industry of labelling foods by calories so you can add them up in a day and, and, and give a rough amount. And there's also the whole diet industry is based around this sort of myth of the calorie being the only number you need to look at. And you know, and the food companies go along with that and their labels have the most unhealthy food, biggest junk food, the most ultra-processed stuff, but if it's got a low-calorie sticker on it, there's plenty of suckers who are going to keep buying it and, uh, you know, propagated by the system. So it ain't going to change. I think the only way that it's going to change is bottom-up. People will, you know, stop buying products with these misleading stickers on it they'll realize that, that there's no such thing as a, a magic 2,500 calories for any man or, or, or woman. And uh, it, it's useless as a guide. And we need to start saying that's not the most important thing on the label. Uh, you should be looking that the companies use that to cover up the fact that it's got 20 different chemicals in there. It doesn't resemble any, any whole food at all. It is ultra processed. And studies are now showing that if you eat ultra processed food of the same calories versus ultra versus non virtually non processed whole foods of the same calories, you will eat twenty five percent more uh, of the tasty ultra processed food stuff, which is exactly what the companies want you to do. So that's why the calorie is a complete misleading uh, 
figure. It is the worst way to assess food. And it's been successfully used, this not only low calorie, but low fat, to distract us from saying, oh, maybe I shouldn't have the ultra processed option here, even if it is tasty and it's got all these health stickers on it, because I'm going to actually eat more of that stuff and it's going to make me hungrier over the next 24 hours. And now it is amazing. Only two years ago, the very first randomized controlled trial of ultra processed foods was done. And that is a testament to how powerful the food industry is in stopping that, in you know, keeping people's minds away from the fact that this junk food that can now constitutes 50% of you know, all the meals in Ireland and Britain um, is made of. And it is making us more hungry. It's making us more obese. And we, we, we think it's healthy because it's got healthy stickers on it. And that's, that's really the, the essence of it. And I think these, these studies showing you know, how identical calories have different effects also means that you know, a calorie is a calorie it is really no, absolutely not true. So I think people need to know about calories in order to sort of dismiss them and stop using that as, as a guide to what to eat because, A, it's, it's flawed, it's impossible, no calorie-controlled diets have ever really worked. That's why, that's why there's so many diets uh, out there based on it that keep getting returning customers. Yeah, like the, the stats with kind of re- weight regain and kind of putting more weight on after after particular diets and stuff that the research would would state that like after five years or whatever. You mentioned the words labels and words on foods in regards to like say if it says low fat or high or say protein or whatever it may be. And one of the things he spoke about in Spoonfed was the word diet on food labels. Why do you think, obviously, the, the, the money is obviously the main reason why people and companies put that on. But what, how would you change that if you were going to be kind of going to be regulating that and putting that out into the shops? Like, how would you change that for, for the consumer? Or what would you be wary of to kind of teach the consumer to kind of watch out for that? Um, well, I, you know, I, I, I would tell I would take away. Any, anything relating to low calorie and low fat means healthy. So, you know, I'm not saying I would, you need to do away with a calorie sticker on it, but you would just make it as part of the actually what are the ingredients and print the ingredients in a font that you can actually read without a microscope. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would start to introduce the concept of having a grading system of how processed that food is so you know the difference between um, having something in its pure form that you can still see as a plant and you know some extract of that plant that is many factory processes down the line that no longer resembles it so this is what um, the brazilians have done for example and a lot of other south american countries have graded foods into four categories based on how processed they are. And Chile has gone as far as to say, well, if it's ultra processed and it contains you know, more than 12 different chemicals and, not, and no actual whole plants in there, it gets a, a black dot on there. And that's, that's all you need to say, you know, avoid this or have these in small amounts. And that's, that's what I would like to see uh, with cutting out all this fake, uh, healthy, healthy uh, labeling as well, which is very misleading. So more on in, just the ingredients, highlighting the fi- you know, fiber content, which is often hard to find, and getting some grading scale of how processed that food is, which um, ultimately would also tell you how good it is for your gut. And in the future, I would like to see a gut-friendly index as well and this is something we are working on with a with a company called zoe that does uh, is selling new personalized nutrition products in the us now and we're bringing that to the uk um, this year so that allows both a general scoring of food uh, in an unbiased way but then also goes and allows it to be personalized 
But I think in terms of the general food label, I think we need to be much more focusing on how processed that food is, which is a way of saying how, how likely are you to overeat and how likely is that food to upset your gut um, as really important and, and downplay all this old-fashioned stuff and stop people picking low-fat, highly synthetic processed options, which are much worse than the full-fat natural version that we were eating 30 years ago. Was it easy to implement in countries like Chile and Brazil with those kind of labels and stuff, or was there a transition period? Um, there was a transition period, and there was actual intimidation of a lot of politicians by uh, the food companies there, and particularly the soft drinks companies. People got beaten up and things uh, when they were mentioning it in Parliament because the, the power of these uh, these companies is so is so large that they you know there's a bit of a, a mafia in some of these countries getting vending machines in schools and things like this. Um, and But I, I think they are winning slowly and people do do appreciate it. But it, it, it hasn't been not easy in those countries. And uh, a bit like the early days of getting rid of cigarettes um, and, uh, you know, environmental protesters and things like this. So um, hats off to them for, for trying and, and being brave because it's, it's not easy. And, you know, there is big uh, big business as well. If, you know, if someone says we want to make a processed food a factory in your neighbourhood that's going to bring jobs, or you know, sell new soft drinks there, uh, you have to you know look after that industry. You can see why politicians are often in a dilemma, and why governments, on the one hand, have a health message; on the other hand, are subsidising uh, processed food factories in their backyard and we need we need much more consensus about, about joining that up you mentioned there about kind of the the, the gut mi- microbiome and i think a lot more people are a lot more symptoms of ibs and uh, issues and gut issues going on around at the minute and um, from dealing with talking to people on a daily basis there's various different strains and different def- different ailments and stuff like that regarding kind of and intolerance tests and intolerance intolerances seem to be a big word it's like some people are self-diagnosing themselves oh, I'm, I'm celiac or i'm lactose intolerant or whatever it may be what is the actual best way to find out if you are allergic to a particular food because there's so much research on igg's there's so many there's so much research on skin prick tests or ige's what is the best one uh, and most accurate form to find out if you are allergic to something well the optimum is to see a real allergy specialist, yeah. which costs which costs the money. But if someone who's unbiased, who's not selling you products that you you can trust, they will they will tell you and they will interpret these uh, skin prick tests, and they will then probably do a uh, a, cha- a food challenge on you, and. It's really that that food challenge and then the withdrawal that is uh, the the best evidence you have. There's many of these uh, home kits and and internet tests that are extremely unreliable and misleading. And they've been around for 20 years or so. And they're very rarely uh, supported when you go and see a a specialist. And they'll tell you to avoid those, those kind of tests. So... Obviously, you know, for people at home who may who may not have the money to go and see a specialist, trying to cut something out completely from your diet for two weeks in a in a radical way is often the best indication of what's going on. Um, and most people, when they do that, find well, it didn't make any difference, or uh, it was something else. But there's a huge psychological effect, and we see this a lot with gluten, uh, particularly at the moment, because everyone is so, you know. I've, it's been amazing since I went on a gluten-free diet. And um, so 10 times more people think they have gluten intolerance or, or uh, gluten allergy than they really do. And often it, but it is a sign that they probably do need to relook at their diet. But the worry is if they just focus on gluten, they end up eating ultra-processed gluten-free products and long-term reduce their diversity and long-term uh, drive down the diversity of their gut so they'll have more immune problems more allergies and it's a vicious circle so 
I think for those people, it, often it's just if you go for a whole food plant diet for a couple of weeks, you don't really have anything else. You know, that's the way to show um, what's upsetting you. And, you know, I think there is a real worry that people just go for a quick fix uh, because a lot of these problems have been caused long term. You know, you don't suddenly get IBS overnight. Generally, um, you know, it's because you, you're gut health has been poor for years probably because you haven't been giving enough fiber you haven't given enough diversity whatever it is plus or minus some other illnesses it's not something you can just fix with a single i'm just going to stop eating that and that's going to change me it's much more likely to be a, a broader approach a more holistic approach uh, that's necessary and again trial and error you know we keep coming back to this um there's many types of ibs you know we, we categorize there's about four types medically, but there's probably, you know, 40 uh, types. We're just calling the same thing. So uh, self-experimentation, but, you know, tr trying to trick yourself also. Um, get someone to slip in some different foods and see if you notice them, you know. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting one because it does come up a lot. And I know even with some of my mates and stuff like that, they would kind of be... It, it, and you kind of talk to them about it a little bit when they start asking you questions. And as you've mentioned there, for some of them, it's kind of like, well, they're not diverse enough in, in what they're having regarding their fiber and stuff and focus on that for a little bit and see what happens. But sometimes you're better, better off not trying to give advice or to your friends or family. They just don't listen. Just stay away from it. Yeah. and But I think, you know, for anyone listening who's, who is struggling with allergies or, um, particular problems they think is related to one particular item you know you can't go wrong if you say listen just put that on hold of it try and improve your gut health improve your diversity of microbes and if if those microbes which are all chemical factories are pumping out really good stuff that's good for your immune system long term you know you're going to diminish the effect of this you'll be in a much better place rather than being obsessed about a quick fix for that that one food that's, you know, triggering this, which is highly unlikely. It's much more likely to be the general environment of your whole gut microbes. So how do you build up them up? You can't go far wrong with that advice. And, that, and that's the sort of advice that's in both the books, you know, Dartmouth and Spoonfed, you know, trying to get 30 different plants a week, trying to get the fermented foods regularly in there, trying to have high polyphenol foods, cutting out ultra-processed foods, and then introducing a bit of, intermittent fasting and you know you do that and you don't have to worry about the detail of what you think is is wrong with you most people will get some benefit from it i think that's i think that's a massive thing that you have to try and try and test it and and, and try and introduce a few things and try to reduce a few things and, and see you mentioned there about the 30 types of, of vegetables and the fermented stuff as well in there what would you say to someone is like I, I don't have time or I don't have the the financial resources to go out and be spending and time to, to, to resource 30 types of vegetables a week because it is quite a lot for a lot of people, especially if you haven't necessarily been eating a whole lot of fiber and vegetables, uh, particularly if you're kind of like a little bit lower on the, the economic spectrum as well. Like it, it, some, like especially if you go organic, the price goes up, but in relation to vegetables and stuff, people think that eating healthy is more expensive. Yeah, well, I, I would say um, it can be more expensive. It depends how fussy you are with it. Um, and, you know, I would say if you can't afford organic, um, that's not the most important thing no. at, at this, this stage. I would just say, well, go for cheaper products. But um, many of the things you can get, are, you can get, you know, 10 of those um, plants just by getting a, a bag of mixed nuts and seeds and sprinkle them on your yogurt in the morning. Uh, so there's ways of cheating this. You don't have to get exotic uh, fruits and vegetables from uh, Hawaii or whatever in, in, in February to, just to, to meet that target. So, you know, the, third, the people have to remember what a plant is. It's, it's a herb. It's a spice. Um, it's anything and you know many of these things are, are very cheap you know there's absolutely nothing wrong with a, a can of kidney beans or cannellini beans 
you get a can of mixed beans, there's three, four different plants in there. Um, frozen veg is absolutely fine, as is frozen fruit. So um, you don't have to spend a fortune. It doesn't have to be ultra fresh. Frozen is and canned is also really good uh, alternatives and sometimes even better than stuff that's been hanging around in the shop for ages or in your cupboard. So um, I don't think it's, it's that much of a challenge. Uh, I think if you can afford it, some of these vegetable boxes uh, and these ways of getting into vegetarian cooking are a really good way to kickstart it, particularly if you're a bit stuck for menus and things. Uh, I, f I found them really useful myself when I started doing this in a big way about five years ago. Um, so I think if, if people are saying, oh, it's too much for me, well, you know, sign up for that and you'll find out it's not that expensive um, when, you, when you do that over a month uh, as other ways. So I don't think you should be put off by it and people just need to understand the various tricks and things you can, you can get around it. Once you understand what a plant is and you know, realize that actually 80% of what we eat, are, are, most people anyway, are, are plants. We don't deviate from that, but some of them don't look like plants. And we want to go back to eating things that actually look like uh, what they originally were. Rather, uh, rather than uh, things like Pringles or uh, <laughs> Cheerios that no longer <laughs> look yeah. like I think what you've said there about kind of like the frozen fresh um, and the tinned veg, I think a lot of people kind of forget about those. They forget that nuts and seeds and like chia seeds, flax seeds, all that kind of stuff can be implemented into it as well. And I think when people hear plants are like, oh, it must come out of the ground with the root and everything attached to it. I think that's a huge element. Um, and I think one of the big things that and we've spoken about biases from kind of the research side of things we're talking about biases when people are going on diets are attached to a label and one of the big things that kind of comes up is is there any link with the kind of diseases on red meat or is the vegan diet better for you because vegans are a tribe and then there's also the carnivores that are a tribe so it's kind of like where is there a happy medium or is one better for the other uh, and you've got the ketos somewhere in the middle. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to mention them. <laughs> well, these, are the, these are the new religion, right? Yeah. So um, yeah. these religious groups have, have come up and, you know, the high priests are very dogmatic. You're either with us or you're against us. And there's no room for um, people like me that, you know, eat. We, I eat meat once a month, right, um, for my B12 levels. And, you know, I still like a little bit of high quality meat every now and again. Um, but most of the time I have plants. Now, when we looked at the gut health of 11,000 people and compared that to what category of, uh, they called religion, food religion they called themselves, whether they were uh, vegetarian, vegan or carnivores, we found that the healthiest guts uh, was driven by uh, the people that ate the most diverse plants. So on average, that tended to be vegetarians and vegans, but there were some meat eaters, uh, perhaps like myself, who had occasional meat and plenty of veg that did just as well. So there's nothing wrong with uh, adding meat to your diet as long as you get enough, to, uh, of, you get enough plants to keep your microbes happy. I think that's the that's the rule here. But if people who eat a lot of meat tend not to have the diversity of plants that keeps their um, their gut healthy. So I think there's a it's sort of what you've got to realize in, in nutrition, there isn't such a thing as this is good, this is bad. It's what are you replacing it with? If you you know if you have meat for every every meal of the day, then there's less room on your plate to nourish your gut microbes. Your gut microbes don't particularly like meat. There's nothing there that particularly excites them. Um, your body takes the protein, but they don't sort of use that in it like they do that use the plants. Um, they might use the fat a little bit, but um, the protein they're not particularly interested in. So, and we get plenty of protein anyway from vegetables. We don't, none of us are lacking protein these days. So, my view on meat is that um, we should, uh, there's nothing unhealthy about eating good meat uh, if it's not 
highly processed. So highly processed meats, uh, cheap um, salamis, the stuff that goes into your frozen lasagna is not good for you. And that the epidemiology is pretty consistent on that. Um, but if you have high quality meat, you know, organic, grass fed, tasty, a small amount of that, there's no evidence that's bad for you at all. Now, where how much meat you should eat, unfortunately, comes down to this uniqueness. I think there are some people who can eat a lot of meat without any health problems. Uh, but the others, there's evidence now that some of these, uh, if you eat too much meat, it interacts with your gut microbes and they produce uh, uh, chemicals that can upset your uh, arteries and, and start laying down um, plaque in those arteries and cause you problems. And which you resolve even if you, okay, some people don't have those microbes and are fine. And but for the moment, if you just have a small amount of meat, you don't get that problem. So I think that's my, my view is that um, there's nothing special about uh, pure vegetarianism or pure veganism other than the amount of uh, variety of plants you get on your plate. And so if you want to eat meat, absolutely fine. Just leave plenty of room for uh, plants. But, you know, I still, uh, I'm telling people it's best to eat less than we have been. And certainly it's the best thing you can do for the planet is to eat uh, less red meat. Um, as an individual and that's uh, I, you know I, I do believe we start need to start looking after not only ourselves but also um think about the planet the overall picture yeah because i know i was watching something with i think it was david attenborough on it, something recently he did something on the whole what the what where the world is going to be in say 50 years and it was quite scary from the amount of stuff that we are doing like we are messing up the the ecosystem the environment and everything quite quickly because the amount of the abundance of stuff that we're taking and doing to it at the minute and i think when i talk about abundance i know from being in ireland uh alcohol is it comes in abundance um and it's one of those things that it's also like a tribe in that you some people have teetotal some people like to have a drink and there's nothing wrong with either but is there kind of like a sweet point or kind of a recommended daily allowance or whatever it may be to kind of help with the overall health because i think some people can't think like right teetotal is the best i'm not gonna have any drink any drink at all because that's just better for me but some people are like well i want to have like a glass of wine or a, or a bottle of wine a week is there a sweet point for some people or does it depend which is the normal nutrition answer oh, well of course it depends <laughs> um, and we know genetically some you know we metabolize alcohol differently and interesting alcohol is um you know, its relationship to our gut microbes is, uh, isn't really there for pure alcohol. So pure alcohol, you know, if you're drinking vodka or something, it gets absorbed in your stomach and uh, it doesn't really in interact much with your gut microbes until it's got a bit of plant in it like, you know, uh, hops or uh, grapes or whatever the extra ingredient is um, for it. But the um, our data show that, you know, one to one to one and a half glasses of red wine, for example, are good for your gut health. And red wine is certainly the healthiest uh, alcohol to drink. Um, most uh, governments say that you should drink zero alcohol to be healthy. Uh, but the evidence is quite clear that if you do have um, a glass or two, certainly of uh, red wine and possibly other alcohols, uh, your risk of heart disease is lower. So there is somewhere a sweet spot, probably around a glass a day, that uh, ideally should be either artisan cider um, or it should be uh, red wine because both of them have very high polyphenol contents, which are the defense chemicals in plants that uh, we know are really good for our gut microbes. And that's, that's, my, uh, that's my view, I'm and I'm sticking to my, uh, my glass of cider or, or red wine. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, like anyone, we, we do overdo it. But 
the epidemiologists tend to overlook the potential social advantages of small amounts of drinking that is very common in, for example, Mediterranean countries. Little old ladies meet up for a beer, you know, at six o'clock with their friends out on the street. And that has enormous advantages for longevity. And it, whether it's the beer or it's just the meeting their friends, um, I think that's really important. And so I, I think that's often not included in, the, in these analyses. Uh, so I, 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 I'm, not a, I'm not a zero alcohol person. I, I don't think binge drinking is good either. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think adopting a more Mediterranean style of drinking it, it is probably healthy, um, which is sort of one to two glasses uh, every most days. But I think it's always good as well to have a few days off uh, to remind yourself if you have an addictive personality or alcohol is a problem for you because it is a drug and, you know, we've got to use it carefully. I think uh, what you said, it's really fascinating what that you mentioned about the societal aspect of it in relation to like the mental health aspect and that can have a knock-on effect onto how you feel, your body feels, the stress levels, IBS, all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of people don't really... I think that's why a lot of people are struggling now is that because they're isolated because of what's happening at the minute, there's an awful lot of more kind of more mental health kind of things coming out. And there is research showing that if you are, if they're more sociable, you're going to potentially live a little bit longer than someone who's kind of like not really seeing a lot of people. So that has to be brought into it. And, that, and I'm delighted you brought that in. The last question I'm going to ask uh, is in relation to the likes of kind of artificial sweeteners, because there's, mixed research on it and there's because especially it kind of goes along with the alcohol and that a lot of people would have kind of like diet cokes and stuff with their vodka or their mixer or whatever it may be is there kind of a dosage that we should kind of aim away from and stay away from or is it artificial sweetness in general are they kind of uh, bad for us in general i think there it depends what you mean by bad but the studies that have been comparing uh, artificial sweeteners and sugar beverages, you know, so take your Cokes, your Pepsis, your Fantas, and they divide them, do a trial of overweight kids or adults, and they give them these two things. They rarely show any difference between the groups, having two cans a day, which makes me think, well, you know, and there's a, a difference of around 300 calories. So you don't get the benefit on these zero calories that people count up. Uh, by you know the sort of bonus that people think they're having when they have uh, a zero calorie drink doesn't seem to transmit into any weight loss. Okay, that's that's the first thing. So um, I actually prefer people drank had the only problem with eating sugar is actually that your teeth fall out and your kids get fillings, but at least it's more you know what you're having and it's a chemical your body can deal with. Uh, the artificial sweeteners actually there's you're right that there is data both sides but my view is that there's more data showing that they are potentially harmful for your gut microbes than there is that it's perfectly safe so we think that they sensitize kids to sweet tastes get them more hooked on sweet things and that's why there's increasing the food companies are mixing it with real sugar as well to try and get that sweetness level up um, and so they will always have a higher and higher threshold of what they find um, sweet and that's why we you know we can't we, we don't buy great original grapes that we bought 20 years ago because we find them too sour because we're not used to uh, these tastes so it's changing our taste buds water or uh, these other one or the other so say if you're out in a restaurant when we can go out again um, in relation to like having a kind of a Diet Coke or a Diet 7 Up or Diet Sprite, whatever it may be, for yourself, would you, what like say a glass of red or whatever it would be, but what would, would you aim for a normal full fat Coke or would you kind of go for the diet option or would you just go for water itself? For your- well, I'd go, for, I'd go for water. I mean, I uh, up to... Five years ago, I, w- I would have a Diet Coke or Pepsi, um, thinking it was fine, it was okay, it was pretty healthy, and I- I've just changed my mind. And, you know, it-, it just keeps sensitizing you more to more and more sweetness. So, I, you know, 
I, I'd much go, you know, you're probably better off with a beer, beer red wine, than uh, either the, the you know the sugary coke or the um, or or or, or the artificial sweetener version. And I think sports drinks also I'm noticing are also keep increasingly adding in these artificial sweeteners, uh, which I think is a very worrying trend that, you know, supposedly these health drinks uh, are adding in more and more chemicals to sort of attract people thinking, and, and again, linking, you know, the whole thing with exercise and being healthy and zero calories, which is, uh, as we know, nonsense. Which is the marketable side of things at the minute, and like it's, I'd, I think the big caveat there is that it's not that like calories in, calories out isn't what causes weight loss. It's kind of like in relation to the holistic picture, there has to be other aspects of it as well, and that's the big caveat that we want to put out that it's not diminishing what the actual scientific research says. Is that there's a holistic picture to look at towards behavioural attitudes and psychological and physiological aspects, and that's the big picture that we want to kind of create there. Tim, I cannot thank you enough um, for that. Where can people find out the? Where can people buy the Diet Myth, and where can people find out the brand new book, uh, Spoonfed? Uh, well, both are available on the uh, Evil Amazon, um, <laughs> and uh, other most retailers should have it. Uh, other internet ones. Um, you can also follow me on uh, Twitter or Instagram, and if you want to know more um, about when the uh, personalized nutrition product is coming to the UK and we're, we're looking into whether it can get to Ireland as well uh, go to the joinzoe.com website and there's a wait list there and you can get more information that way so um, there's plenty going on at the moment and um, uh, yeah it's a fascinating time to be in nutrition it's the most exciting uh, time ever I think there's a, there's a, it's, it's definitely an exciting time if it's something new coming up every day and the day you say you know it all you know absolutely nothing um, but like I put all the links in for the book I put the link into uh, for zoe.com and I put a link in for your Twitter and your social media uh, accounts in up Tim but can I thank you enough for your time and, and congratulations again on, on the brand new book been a pleasure if you've enjoyed the episode at all guys please do tag Tim and I up on your story it Spoonfed is and it's a very very good book and it's it's very very useful with, with some of the information that's in it um and thank you so much to Tim for coming on and I hope you guys found it useful there's a lot of a lot of stuff in there regarding kind of labels ingredients and tolerance testing veganism alcohol I think the the alcohol one will will, will definitely uh, people will find useful but if you've enjoyed the episode please leave a review up on itunes tag us in your story the more people that download it the more people that share it the more people that leave a review i can keep getting the incredible guests so please 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 continue to do so i hope you guys enjoyed the episode